There are things in health and medicine world that happen independent of the choices that you make, you know, genetic and other all sorts of other things that, that, that can influence that. And it's a very, it's a dangerous proposition to put all of that responsibility on a patient. Perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and finding new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while our guest today, Dr. Lovett, is a doctor, he's not your doctor, so we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. That said, I do want to welcome Dr. Lovett to the show, who has a very unique approach, informed by an education that included a degree in physiology. I always have such a hard time with the like P-H-Y-S words and how they're like where the pronunciation is supposed to be. But I'm pretty sure I got that one from. You nailed it. You nailed it. (laughs) It's like every time I see it, I'm like, wait, which of these words is it? Is it psychology? Is it physiology? They're so close. Yeah, we can talk about that later. But you nailed it. You nailed it that time. (laughs) From UCLA and a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bestier University. Is that how you pronounce that one as well? You nailed that one too. You're two for two so far. (laughs) Formal residency training in integrative medicine in Seattle and over 15 years of direct clinical experience with thousands of patients. And in that practice, Dr. Lovett turns upon both the science of conventional and natural medicine, combining the two into a best of both worlds approach. And he employs a unique blend of nutritional therapy, herbal medicine, and physical medicine to treat a wide range of common and complex medical problems. His patients praise him for the ability to educate, motivate, and inspire with stories and guidance. And as someone who has been on his social media, I totally get that. I was a little bit of a stalker before we get the show started today. And at his private practice in Connecticut, he is also a clinical preceptor for the Yale School of Medicine, which I have no idea what that means, but I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Dr. Lovett is also the author of several books, as well as educational articles and videos. As I mentioned, he is on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Josh Lovett, and you can also find his website and all of the other things that he's about at wellness.com. I want to thank you so much for being here today. Could you tell listeners a little bit more about kind of who you really are hopefully i've covered the formal bio but right right you covered the formal embarrassing (laughs) written in the third person kind of kind of bio for sure yeah i'm happy to you want to hear kind of like the origin story yeah whatever you want to share us just so listeners can get a better feel for you know a little bit about yourself and what you're about yeah absolutely i mean first of all i'm a human just like everybody else right i'm i'm here in my little home-based podcast studio, my wife, my three teenagers, my dog are all here. Yes, we have a clinical practice just a few minutes up the road from here. Down the road is Yale University where you asked about the clinical preceptorship. So that basically means bringing students of medicine, in this case, residents of medicine in the internal medicine slash pediatrics program at Yale through the office in a clinical kind of rotation. 
and yeah, my life for the last 25 plus years has been just heavily devoted to the practice of naturopathic medicine, which has evolved a lot over, over those years from kind of like a really alternative medical field, which is sort of what it was when I got into it. My parents being pretty conventionally oriented, including conventional doctors in the mix there, thinking like, what the heck kind of a career is this alternative medicine? How are you ever going to make a living? To now, you know, it being, gosh, like a, a, almost mainstream and, and health and wellness taking over and being a multi-billion dollar industry and biohacking and all this stuff that's it's kind of been a fun and very interesting ride. Like you said, my journey, I'll just give you the brief origin story started at UCLA. I always thought I was going to be a conventional doctor, just kind of one of those kids who always wanted to be a doctor. But I had kind of back room, backstage access to physicians at UCLA because of my dad's job at the time, training medical residents there. And it became clear to me from talk conversations with them that medicine was going in a different direction, right? Like it wasn't what it used to be, so to speak, you know, the increasing influence of insurance companies, increasing influence of big pharma, all these sort of factors that were telling them, telling, having them tell me, you know, going into medicine, maybe not the best idea. So long story short, I took off for a year and I traveled around the world kind of in one of those soul seeking, searching kind of ways. And during that trip, I got sick with this problem called cellulitis, which is a superficial but spreading skin infection that was related to me, like wearing sandals and sleeping on beaches and living out of youth hostels and stuff. And I was in Switzerland at the time. I needed antibiotics desperately. It was a very bad, like limb threatening kind of infection. I got the antibiotics at a Swiss pharmacy. And when I went in there, I not only got the antibiotics that I needed that cured the problem, but also exposed me. I don't know if you've ever been to a European pharmacy. It's full of herbal medicine stuff, nutritional medicine stuff. And I was just tripped out by that. I'd never seen anything like that. And it lit this passion in me and this interest that is just still burning strong now. So it's a funny irony because I'm a naturopathic doctor, right? But I got my start on the day that I needed antibiotics. And so it's a sort of a funny irony. Here I am 25 years later, still practicing, still educating, formulating products. Yeah, it's my world. I think that's a fascinating story that also tells a lot about the juxtaposition in how you approach. I do want to kind of swallow the frog, so to speak, and address the most difficult part of the discussion. I have had a real challenge wrestling how I feel naturopathic medicine, holistic wellness, general natural approaches, because I have found in the, you know, almost 15 years that I've been doing this, I was perpetuating concepts of healthism, of ableism, of fat phobia, and systems of oppression for those marginalized people and groups who don't have access to the resources that I was often recommending and that are often found in the community. And I mean, we spoke a little bit before we got started as a foster parent and going through and seeing more about the full breadth of what struggles people have in the real world outside of my personalized and very privileged bubble. It kind of opened me up to, okay, how do I take all of this information and knowledge that I now have and use that because the information is still relevant. It's still accurate that these things can be very helpful, yet can solutions be inclusive? 
can we find ways to explore how everyone can have access to some of the tools that we know are helpful beyond conventional medicine? So I'm kind of curious if this is something that you're familiar with, have thoughts on, have seen as you've been doing this for 25 years progress, like where are you with that process? Yeah. Wow. Stacey, it's, it, it, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, we're jumping right in, swallowing <laughs> the frog, right? Eat the frog, do the yeah. hard stuff first. But this is super important. And yes, I'm familiar with it. Yes, I've wrestled with it myself, both personally and professionally. And I think you're spot on. And the crazy thing about it, I mean, just to start this conversation, because we could really go deep here, is that natural medicine in its true kind of form ought to be the medicine for everyone, right? Like, I mean, that this is what we're talking about, the medicine from the earth, the foods, the herbal medicines. These should not be the medicines that are exclusive to people who have money, to people who have power, to people who have privilege, right? Like, I mean, this is the medicine for the people. And like, that's sort of what I was referring to actually in a way, watching that evolution over the last 25 years of my career in the field, seeing this kind of pure natural medicine, this very earthy, down-to-earth kind of practice become the purview of like Instagram influencers and biohackers and functional medicine practices that charge people $1,500 an hour to get access to natural medicine. I mean, what? where are we going, right? And that is a sad state of affairs indeed. You mentioned healthism which I think is a really interesting one. I'm not sure that I, you certainly do. And I suspect that a lot of your audience does too, sort of understand what that means. And it, it's super, super important. And I think it's a major slippery slope in natural medicine. Let me just define it for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, at least by my definition, correct me if I'm wrong. But like the idea of healthism is that someone's health is their own pure and total responsibility, right? That if something is going wrong in one's health, then you are doing something wrong, right? Not eating right, not exercising enough. You know, healthism is like, if something's not right, then it's your fault, right? And am I on track with that? Yes, absolutely. And I would add to that, that it's somehow defined to their worth, that as part of society, if, so for example, my story is, you know, I originally lost over a hundred pounds, like did all this work within my family who's very neurodiverse to find things that helped us optimize our lives to live healthier lives. And I felt for a very long time that made me better, like better than who I was before that. But also, if I'm being honest, better than those people who were not willing to make the sacrifices that I made to, you know, have the lifestyle and blah, blah, blah. And I think you know, when I think of healthism, I think very much of that, like, yes, that lifestyle stuff helped, but it didn't make me a better person than someone else who is yeah. doing that. Yeah. And I, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. The, to piggyback on top of that, the, are you familiar with Bernie Siegel back in the day? Bernie Siegel, famous author. He was a Yale guy, a pediatric oncologist. It's really relevant to our discussion here. Powerful, I think, example of this on the medical side. So he was a pediatric oncologist. He was famous for shaving his head in solidarity with his pediatric cancer patients back in the day. And he wrote some very beautiful and important books with titles like Love, Medicine, and Miracles was one of the most famous ones. And Bernie was a great guy and big mover and shaker in the field of a more, I don't know, gentle, natural form of conventional medicine. But 
at the, he was also criticized and he was criticized for this kind of healthism thing, which has to do with this, right? If indeed, you know, part of a treatment plan is love or prayer or these sorts of things, then especially in pediatric cancer patients, but in anyone, right? Anyone with any sort of medical problem, mental, physical, or otherwise, you know, if we believe or are inclined to believe that love or prayer or meditation or exercise or diet or any of these wonderful things are part of the treatment plan, then if the treatment plan doesn't go well, which often is the case in pediatric cancer or in other diseases, I'm a physician, we see bad stuff all the time. It's easy for the patient to believe that they didn't love enough, that they didn't pray enough, or that they didn't meditate properly or eat properly or exercise enough or whatever the case may be. And that is a very dangerous and slippery slope, in my opinion. I'm glad you brought that up. I wasn't familiar with this work, but I resonate a lot with that example. I remember being on book tours and talking to people. I authored three paleo cookbooks and have autoimmune diseases and different kinds of things that were helped tremendously by making lifestyle changes. And I would talk to people who would just be in tears and say, I'm doing everything exactly the way I'm supposed to be doing. And it's, I'm not fixed, you know, and it comes from a place of, first of all, feeling broken, which is sad, right? Like, it's also just heartbreaking to see that someone takes, when we feel personally accountable, instead of just empowered with the information, then I think that it can also feel like we're a failure. We're broken. We're these things if it doesn't work. And I think, you know, what I love about the work that you do is that you pair it with conventional medicine. And it's okay to also say, you know, if you're doing the things that we know from, you know, experience and from science can often help people and it's not helping you, it's okay to also like reach out and use some of these other tools that are available, which is definitely what I want to talk more about today, because I do think that is a place where it's like a niche I find that has to be where we go, yet is not popular because it's not clickbaity on the internet, mm-hmm. not compelling for people to be like, you know, moderation doesn't sell the way that like the extremes of one or the other convince people this is going to be the thing. So yeah. I'm just wondering if you're kind of ready to move on from that. I know I opened the can of worms. Are we ready to put a lid on it and talk a little bit more? Or did you have other thoughts come up? Oh, I mean, we can certainly put a lid on it, but I think the lid's going to be like permeable, right? And it's yeah. going to like infuse our conversation because that conversation about inclusivity and access and all that stuff is is very important. And we could go on and on about that. I do. So I'm happy to go on there, but also to let it just permeate or infuse the rest of our conversation. I do want to just acknowledge, because I've said it so many times just in, in the clinical practice setting where, you know, of course, you know, eating well, nutrition, physical activity, lifestyle management, all those those things are important tools in the do- in the toolkit of a naturopathic doctor like me. But I can't tell you how many times I've told a person, look, you didn't eat your way into this problem and you're not going to eat your way out of it either. And that doesn't mean that nutrition's not important, right? Diet is important. I want you to eat the right things that try 
to maximize your potential, right? But there are things in health and medicine world that happen independent of the choices that you make, you know, genetic and other, all sorts of other things that, that, that can influence that. And it's a very, it's a dangerous proposition to put all of that responsibility on a patient. And I can't tell you like how many times people have felt such relief at hearing such a simple statement like this, like, no, you didn't eat your way into this. This just happens. And sometimes bad stuff happens and we need to, you know, I sometimes use the metaphor of like, we're playing cards, like we're playing poker or whatever. And sometimes you get a bad hand and like, that's a bummer when that happens, but you play on, you know, you do the best you can. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And uh, when a person comes in with a diagnosis that is, you know, serious or chronic or whatever the case may be, some people get dealt a bad hand. And then our job at that point is to play it the best way that we can, you know? And so, yeah, we can, we can certainly move on into more practical things, but let's let it infuse the rest of the conversation for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And also hopefully listeners can take, you know, a sigh of relief and knowing it's not because you didn't, you know, do the thing well enough, or, you know, we used to joke, it's not about paleoing hard enough. Like if you're doing all the things feel really good about that. And then also know that there are other tools available to you. So let's yeah, and there, there's one other thing that I would just add in. And then I promise, right. We'll <laughs> move into the cut into the details. And that, that is this interesting phenomenon that like, I think people conflate a lot, the two areas of like what we're calling health and wellness, and then this thing called natural medicine. And to me, there's, they're sort of distinct, right? Like Health and wellness, I think of it really, and I'm in that space, but I think of it as kind of like this Instagram version of reality, right? This optimization and doing fancy and expensive functional laboratory testing and eating according to these various dietary patterns and, you know, getting into the details of which type of magnesium is most appropriate, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's like high level functional medicine stuff often aimed at optimizing performance or optimizing longevity or this, or even just optimizing for prevention. And in my real world clinical practice, it's very rare for somebody to come in and say, Hey doc, like I'm doing awesome. And I want you to help me be more awesome. That's just not usually what people come in for, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, I mean, that'd be amazing. That'd be so easy. Right. But instead they come in with thyroid diseases and diabetes and like, late stage arthritis and other autoimmune diseases and cancer and whatever other, other thing, you know, and though people are motivated by pain, they're motivated by suffering. And so when I think of natural medicine, I think of medicine, this is clinical practice, people who are sick and they're suffering in some kind of way. And that's a lot different than a person's like my biceps are 18 inches and I want to get them to 20, you know, or whatever, right? Like for bodybuilding, those are two very different and distinct fields in my mind anyway. So I think there's a lot of yeah. conflate those two a lot. Yeah. I think the other thing that I think of is all the people who have tried the basic things that you're talking about and it doesn't work for them. And so instead of feeling like, okay, and now I'm going to add in. So in my case, I added in anti-anxiety medication because I'm a control freak and I you know, have perfectionist tendencies. And while I'm working with all of that in therapy and different kinds of things, I also recognize that anxiety was causing a lot of the symptoms that I was experiencing. And so I think the hard thing as a human is to kind of admit I can't control something and I need help from something else. And so in 
being at that flux point, a lot of people feel like what I'm doing isn't working. So I need to do it more. I need to do it better. It's not that I'm not taking the magnesium. It's that I'm not taking the right kind of magnesium or enough magnesium. And as someone who is deficient in magnesium for my stress and everything else, I have played with multiple magnesiums and looking at, you know, how much is my body absorbing and all those kinds of things. And I also recognize the privilege in being able to do that, right? And yeah. being able to accept that aside. It sounds to me like you took it in a stepwise fashion, much the way that I would describe anybody approach any medical problem, especially one that's of a chronic and not emergent type of nature, you know, is like approach it with those, I would call them low order, low force interventions first. Those are things like modifying the diet, modifying the lifestyle to the extent that you're able, you know, exploring herbal or nutritional medicines, amino acid therapies, minerals like magnesium, and then moving up the line and understanding that like a therapeutic approach or an intervention is it often is like a ladder. And we describe it as such in naturopathic medicine. We call it a hierarchy of therapeutics, starting with the low force interventions, you know, the ones I just mentioned, and then moving up the line or up the stairs of the ladder from there recognizing that it's a little more perilous as you get higher, right? Like it's perfectly okay to acknowledge that stepping into the medication realm or into the surgery realm is a little bit more perilous, a little bit more forceful, potentially a little bit more toxic. But sometimes, you know, to get those upper levels, you know, if you're painting a house or something, you need to get up on those higher rungs and that's perfectly okay. I think where we go wrong a lot of times in medicine is that in conventional medicine anyway, is that we go to those top rungs so quickly without ever acknowledging the ones below. And if we keep it stepwise, I don't see any reason why pharmaceutical interventions or even surgical interventions can't be part of the algorithm, right? They ought to be. There are times when a person needs a surgery. There are times when a person should think of that medicine as a blessing, not a curse, and certainly not a failure. So that's where I'm at. That's how I've always practiced. And it sounds like you're, you know, we're cut from the same cloth in that regard. Yes. And hopefully I think our listeners will identify a lot with that because I've tried to take them along that journey. And I think it's where you offer something really unique and what you share with your audience on social and different kinds of things. And so one of the stories that you shared on Instagram, because I am the mother of four teenagers. I am on Instagram, not TikTok. Was about the Movo, which I hadn't heard of before, as being a new medicine that came out that was essentially two over-the-counter drugs combined into a prescription, which is then ridiculously expensive. And as you were talking, I was like, yeah, sounds about right. I'm wondering if there are other examples like that that we can be aware of when we're talking about access and inclusivity. This is an area where I think people can be empowered to have information and utilize it for their own benefit. Yeah, totally. That that video in the terms of the Instagram world, it popped off, right? People really like that. You know, I wouldn't say that it totally went viral, but people appreciate the sentiment and people can relate to it just in the way that you did. Yeah, Vimovo is this drug that's a combination of naproxen, which is Aleve, you know, it's an anti-inflammatory drug that's commonly used over the counter and a proton pump inhibitor called Nexium, Omeprazole. So those two drugs combined. Now, Aleve, the naproxen part, is harsh on the stomach. And so as a result of that, you know, a lot of people will wind up getting gastrointestinal problems and then having acid in your stomach, which is normal, natural, and important for our digestive health and our overall health. Having acid in your stomach when you're taking a drug that kind of burns or irritates your stomach, kind of like 
adds fuel to the fire and can maybe burn people even worse. And so the idea is suppress the stomach acid with an acid blocking drug, in this case, Nexium, which there's a whole bunch of pitfalls related to that. I don't think that's the right approach anyway. But the idea is if you're going to take a drug that damages your stomach, having acid in your stomach is going to possibly make that even worse. So let's use another drug to suppress the acid. And then Big Pharma comes up with the idea, let's just take those two drugs, combine them together into one pill, and then sell that pill at you know massive markups over what those generic pharmaceuticals would cost. That's what Vimovo is. And to your question, yeah, there's a whole bunch of these different drugs. There's dozens of them in virtually every category where we've taken either branded or generic pharmaceuticals and combined them. I can give you just like a few examples that you might've heard of. One of them that I know everyone's heard of is Percocet. Percocet's oxycodone and Tylenol. It's a combination pharmaceutical. Zegarid is another one that's Nexium with sodium bicarbonate, like with Tums. There's a whole bunch of these in cardiovascular medicine that are combinations of like a diuretic and a calcium channel blocker, you know, two different blood pressure pills, a statin with a blood pressure medicine, ibuprofen with an, another acid blocking drug. So there's tons of these things. And actually, before our, we we signed on this morning, I did did a little bit of background on this, just figuring this would be kind of a line of inquiry here. And it turns out there was a study about this, like it, it talk about, you know, the gross misuse of funds in American healthcare. There was a study published in JAMA in 2018. So five years old now, we can assume the numbers are even increased from here. There's dozens of these different drugs and Medicare pays for them, right? So it, they're covered by insurance, many of these things. So these researchers did this homework of like, what? how much more is Medicare paying for these combination drugs than they would pay if they just use the drugs like by themselves together, right? Like buy the Aleve and buy the Nexium and put them together. The answer, $925 million per year, right? This is like a billion dollar enterprise and Medicare, which is aka you're in my tax dollars, is paying for it, right? So I have no doubt and every reason to believe those numbers are increased from now. So we're talking about a billion dollar excess spending just on drugs that are combined into a single pill for the purposes of convenience. Sure, they're a little more convenient, but I mean, come on, that, like that's ridiculous in my opinion. And it's overinflated. It's not like an actual cost either, right? It's that they're charging more for something by being able to brand it and not have it be generic for the use of the licensure. I don't even understand all the medical stuff, but I do know that they have a period of time where someone can't make a generic version of that. So it's almost like sometimes pharmaceutical brands are coming up with ways to rebrand and re-come up medicine in order to have it not be in a competitive field. Yeah, yeah, it's just intellectual property law, right? It's patent law. So like they tweak a molecule or do some little manipulation, like add another drug to it. And now all of a sudden, you have patent rights that extend for 10 years, in some cases 15, you know, at, at, during which time only you, the company that is, can sell that particular pharmaceutical, which usually means billions of dollars in added profits from just a small tweak. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's just a big money game. It's a big intellectual property and patent law game for sure. Here's an interesting story for you, given that I probably have personal experience of others might not. So I have a child who is on Medicare because their guardian is the state and they needed a prescription for a medicine that was a little bit different than the generic version, like the 
chemical makeup was a little bit different and they needed the one that was a little bit different for a specific reason. And we tried for months to get medical approval like justification from the doctor as to why that one needed to be and we couldn't get the generic and all this kind of stuff and because they're going through medicare it's like this whole thing to have the legal guardian who's a third party sign forms and then pay out of pocket and get reimbursed it was a nightmare that we ended up just like talking to their medical doctor and being like what is a different thing that we can do because this is impossible and it was costing in our case, at least it was hundreds of dollars a month and not thousands of dollars a month. But to the average person who has public health care of some kind, Medicare, Medicaid, anything like that, the impossibility of being able to do something like that, right, to fight it. And that the doctor was like, no, literally, this is the one that they need. They can't, like the generic one was causing problems to their symptoms and it was like this one is a little bit different and this is the one they need and still the insurance is the people who got to make the decision about what yeah. the patient needed right it's a crazy it's just crazy it's a tragedy a similar but different experience very personally you know i live here in connecticut and i'm an avid outside person and i get i've gotten lyme disease a few times i'm sure you've heard of it and so lyme disease is best treated this is a <laughs> Could be controversial, but like I think when people get Lyme disease, especially acutely like I did, they need to take antibiotics. And the antibiotic of choice is... I thought you were going to say not take antibiotics. And I was like, that would have been controversial. Yeah, like, if you have acute Lyme disease, please take medicine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah, in my world, what I just said may, may be controversial. So hopefully we won't get too much hate mail after this. But uh, yeah, the drug of choice is doxycycline. I had a prescription for doxycycline called into the pharmacy. The prescription said, you know, all the various elements of the dose and whatnot. And it said, uh, you know, how many capsules were to be in the bottle, which was a month supply, 60 caps. And it said caps. And so they gave me the prescription when I picked it up at the pharmacy and it was capsules of doxycycline and it was like hundreds of dollars. Right. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, I mean, I like, if, listen, I'm, I'm in a privileged position. If I have to pay for it, I'll pay for it. But like a couple hundred bucks for a 30 day supply of a generic old pharmaceutical seems pretty high. And I, so I kind of pushed back and asked the question and they said, well, I said, is there any alternative? And they said, there's tablets as opposed to the capsules, you know, little pressed tablet, as opposed to the powder inside of a capsule. I'm like, how much are those? And those were like nine bucks. right? And I was like, then I want the tablets. I mean, you know, like, I don't think there's any difference. Right. But the prescription said caps, C-A-P-S. So I would have to call the doctor and be like, can you change the C-A-P-S to T-A-B-S tabs? And now I can get the tablets for $9 and save myself like 200 bucks, you know, on this prescription. I'm like, what, what the heck kind of a system is this? You know? Agreed. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. I myself got my career break on Indeed and was so impressed with the updates when I was helping Cole use it to find his first job. They streamline hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And candidates you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to US Indeed Data. Instant Match makes it so simple for employers and candidates alike. 
Don't spend hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resume on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Holdview. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash Holdview. Just go to Indeed.com slash Holdview and support the show by saying you heard about it on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Holdview. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Which also takes us into the to- another topic that I want to discuss, which is that when we do take medicine, which can be lifesavers, I have multiple people in my house. I mentioned I'm on medicine, right? Who are in medicine? You mentioned taking antibiotics yourself. Like, oh my gosh, you took medicine. But when I think of the antibiotics, the first thing I think of to pair that with a more lifestyle type approach is to add in probiotic rich foods to double my probiotic that I take every day, right? If I'm going to take antibiotics, I'm going to repopulate as much happy bacteria while I'm killing off all the bad stuff. And I know you also had a video where you talked about prednisone. Like if someone needs that because it can be life-saving, also be aware that it can be depleting of some nutrients and looking into taking supplements from some of those nutrients that I might be depleting. Can we talk a little bit about what are common medicines that you talk with patients about or that you see come up that can be like, oh, if I know someone is taking this kind of medicine, then I'm going to automatically tell them, make sure you're doing these kinds of things to support yourself as well. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And it's really an important area. And if you look out there or do any kind of internet searching for like, drug nutrient interactions or like drug herb interactions, almost all of the information that you'll find out there is about it being bad, right? That like, if you take this drug with this other herb or with this nutrient or something like that, something bad could happen. Like don't take grapefruit juice while you're taking a statin. You know, it's like, it's almost universal that the idea of interactive substances are bad, which it turns out is not true. There are times where taking medications and taking nutrients can be synergistic or positive, especially, and you alluded to this, in the case of drug nutrient depletions, which are exceedingly common. I mean, there's large-scale databases that are easily searchable of which nutrients, usually minerals and vitamins, are depleted by certain pharmaceuticals. This is well-known information. And so like, if you're taking You use the case of an antibiotic. A probiotic isn't exactly a nutrient, but same kind of idea. You take an antibiotic, it's likely to cause some damage to the microbiome, the healthy critters that live inside and on top of you. You know, all we we have trillions of microorganisms that benefit us. Many of them get killed by antibiotics. So it's a good idea to try to hold that ground while you're on an antibiotic. By the way, little nuance here. A lot of the probiotics get killed by the antibiotics too, right? So like it's kind of a tricky area. And here's a little Pro tip, there's an organism that's called Saccharomyces boulardii. We call it Saccharob for short, and it's actually a yeast. And that yeast organism does not get killed by antibiotics because antibiotics kill bacteria, not, not fungal organisms. And this particular yeast, Saccharob, 
is very useful to take while a person is on antibiotics and for some time after to hold that ground, to hold that gastrointestinal microbiological ground so that when the antibiotic is discontinued, the normal organisms can repopulate. It's a non-colonizing probiotic. It, I could go on and on about Sacro B, but pro tip for your listeners there, if you need to take antibiotics for whatever reason, including Saccharomyces boulardii, along with the probiotic rich foods and even you know a supplemental probiotic can be very useful for decreasing the risks associated with antibiotics. So that's one example. And there are many more. You want to talk about some of the other common drugs? Yeah, absolutely. I was fascinated by the prednisone video that you did. I'm curious what other ones are common medicine people are taking that can be depleting. Yeah, for sure. There's a ton of them. Let's start with statins. Statins are commonly used to lower cholesterol. And that's another whole discussion that we can get into as well. And they're well known to deplete this substance called coenzyme Q10. Statins, the long name, the fancy medical name for them is HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. That's what they do. HMG-CoA reductase is a little factory inside your liver and it manufactures LDL cholesterol. And so when you turn off that factory with an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, which is what a statin is, that factory stops producing LDL cholesterol. So one of the effects of statins is that your LDL number will go down. That's the desired effect. It turns out that same enzyme also makes this vitally important stuff called CoQ10. And so another effect of statins when you take them, it's not a side effect, it's just an effect, which is a little nuance there, is that your CoQ10 levels will go down. So there are problems associated with low CoQ10 levels, and especially in people who have a predisposition to heart disease. So statins co-administered with CoQ10 is a good idea. There's sufficient research to support this idea. It's a hard thing to study, but I like to administer coenzyme Q10 when people take statins. That's one example. There's many others, birth control pills, oral contraceptives, widely consumed deplete B vitamins and magnesium, well-known. And probably are re- that those vitamin and mineral depletions are partly responsible for some of the adverse effects that some people experience when they take oral contraceptives. Take oral contraceptives, take a B vitamin complex with some magnesium in it as well. Proton pump inhibitors, which is like the gastrointestinal drugs like Nexium we talked about, they deplete gastric acid secretion. You need acid to help you digest food, especially minerals and certain vitamins too. So it should be no surprise if you turn off your acid secretion with a drug that's a proton pump inhibitor like Nexium or any of these other ones, Prilosec, Protonics, all these kinds of drugs, that your gastric acid will go down and so will your B12 levels, so will your magnesium levels, so will your calcium levels. And if that goes on long enough, you'll wind up with osteoporosis or other problems related to deficiencies of those compounds. And so there there is another case of a drug-induced nutrient depletion. And there are long lists of of more and more of these. I, I wonder why it is not included, like when they give you the form about the medicine that you're taking and they list possible side effects. Like it would be so easy just to add to that paper, like, hey, you may feel better if you took or, you know, looked into these supplements. Like, yeah, I think part of the problem is that most mainstream medicine practitioners have not been fully trained in those sort of things. And I do have hope that, as you mentioned, the changes that have happened over the last 25 years or more, 
are leading people in a direction to be able to do that. Because I was super impressed when I took my youngest who has ADHD and autism to the pediatrician and he got his ADHD diagnosis for the first time. The first thing that the doctor said to me was he needs to be on fish oil. Like, mm. you know, and I was like, uh, he is. Thank you. I'm really happy that you knew that. <laughs> so yeah. I do think that people are learning, but it's it was definitely not the case 10, 20 years ago, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it, it, there, there is movement in that direction. I've seen, you know, with this evolution, even though it comes with some pitfalls, I think there is also a lot of growth and a lot more openness. And then even some, and for better or for worse, even some attention on the pharmaceutical side, you know, as these things become, you know, some of the combination drugs, by the way, like include natural stuff. Like f there's a Fosamax, which is a osteoporosis drug that includes vitamin D, right? Which is, that's an interesting kind of like, you know, dipping their toe into the pond of natural medicine. And then there's another drug. You may be aware of this one. Have you heard of a drug called Deplin before? Deplin, you have heard of what Deplin actually is, I'm sure, because I know your background a little bit, which is, <laughs> which is activated folic acid. Deplin is a drug, a pharmaceutical, and it's activated folate, and it's useful for people who have mutations in folic acid genetics, MTHFR, et cetera. But what is Deplin used for? So Deplin is a drug that's prescribed for people who take SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors used widely for anxiety and depression, when, and it makes the drugs work better. Activated folate makes SSRIs work better, and you don't need to take it as a drug form. It's readily available over the counter. And so very I was often- I going to say, how is that different than- It's not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's silly, right? It's like you know, prescription- That's why version. I don't know what the prescription is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You know, it doesn't need to be prescribed by a psychiatrist. And there can be- We don't need to get into folate methylation chemistry here, but like there can be some subtle differences in the long names of these various different forms of folic acid. But as long as they're activated folates- then they'll work in a person who's unable to activate folate themselves. And so, yeah, so that's just, yeah, just another example of, of that kind of crossover, cross-pollination happening between the drug world and the natural medicine world. I want to dig into a little bit, you mentioned statins, and I immediately think of my father who occasionally listens to podcasts, FYI, he might be listening who I bravely had a conversation with a few years ago when he told me that he was on statins. And I was like, have you looked into improving your omega-3 ratio, right? Like my father is a conventional food eater. So where I get a anaphylactic reaction to gluten and celiac on my mom's side, my dad doesn't have issues with those things that he's aware of. And so he fully, you know, is a kind of traditional lifestyle person, but he's almost 70 and he's super active. He is just like incredibly healthy. And it would, took a lot for me to be like, have you considered? And he told me that he was taking like an over-the-counter fish oil supplement. And I recommended a different brand to him because I was like, you know, fish oil could be really sensitive and it can oxidize pretty easily tried this one and it was interesting i didn't even know that he had ordered it and then he come he like let me know like six months later he went back in to check his blood work and it had changed so drastically in that six months 
that he no longer needed the statin is what he told me but he was gonna stay on it anyway to be preventative but I just was like amazed in his story that he lives a very traditional though active lifestyle that he could see such positive results from kind of like bringing in something like that and I think this is like one of the areas that I get super frustrated by because there's this classic talk track of outdated information that a lot of people get stuck in and it focuses only on you know like food being a problem like I one of my children has high cholesterol and it is genetic for them it is not related to the foods that they're eating they're also on a bunch of different medication they don't sleep well they have high stress like all of these kinds of things and so when I see it I'm like yeah that's basically an inflammation marker that's what that is and yet most doctors tell people who have high cholesterol that and they're not a nutritionist they do not have background in this that they need to change what they're eating Instead of saying, like, let's talk about your genetics, let's talk about your environment, let's talk about your lifestyle, because all of those things can have an impact on food as well. It's like that's the only advice that they're given. And nobody understands or is told that our body is creating cholesterol in much higher amounts than in the foods that we eat. So while, you know, avoiding inflammatory foods or foods that would be high in cholesterol could have an impact, sometimes it's like, I think of it as taking a teaspoon of water out of a pool. Like it's not really going to affect much. And so, you know, seeing that adding omega-3 to my father's lifestyle and the improvement that it had or different kind of elements and people that I've talked to about stress or sleep or these kinds of things, finally moving the dial for them. I'm wondering if we can talk about like inflammation being a driver for this and where is the line in the patients that you work with on where statins become a worthwhile effort? Because the other thing that I know about statins is that it increases risk of reducing brain health and different kinds of things because our body needs those healthy fats in other areas. Sorry, yeah, that's a big it's long a, soapbox. I feel passionately about this. I can tell. <laughs> no, I can tell. And like, I hope your dad's here. Hi, dad, by oh, the way. Hi, um, hi, yeah. <laughs> um, because good job following your daughter's loving advice. And I'm glad that worked out. It's an interesting story. Fish oil, omega 3s, you know, tend to have a bigger effect on triglyceride numbers than they do on LDL and HDL numbers. But it sounds like for whatever reason, he's doing better and not requiring a drug. That's great. And I think so. Yeah, let's talk about this. So, the way I like to frame this conversation is by starting with the realities on the ground. And the realities on the ground are what we're really talking about here is heart disease, right? And heart disease remains the number one cause of death by a long shot in this country. It's by far the number one cause of death. And, and you know, the second and third causes are way after that. So that's important. The other thing about heart disease that's important to know is that it doesn't have the same kind of presenting signs. We talk about presenting symptoms or signs, right? When someone's de developing diabetes, they might feel extreme thirst or they might urinate a lot. Those are symptoms of, of the onset of diabetes. When someone has cancer or something, they might feel a lump or they might feel, you know, get anemic or something like that. These are presenting symptoms that lead a person to go to the doctor, get checked out, find a diagnosis. 
the most common presenting symptom of heart disease is this troubling symptom that's called sudden death, right? <laughs> and I, you know, I hate to be dramatic, but that's what it is, right? And so you don't know you I have just it. Can't see that I just <laughs> my face just drops. Like I'm like, just like it's a symptom. Okay. Yeah, that's a troubling symptom indeed, right? Like it just you know, you're fine, and then you're not fine, right? And uh, yeah, sorry if I made you snort your water out your nose there, but it's true, right? And so th the reason why I mention that is because of those two things, it being a very common problem and often killing a person before they ever knew they had it. We, the American healthcare, the global healthcare system has invested heavily into understanding who is going to get that problem. So with good intentions so that we can prevent it, right? Like that's the most important thing. If you have a very common problem that kills you before you even know you had it, it's a really good idea to invest heavily into understanding who's going to get that problem so you can understand who those people might be and then understand what, try to understand what you can do to prevent it from happening. And over the course of the last many decades, we've begun to understand this actually pretty well. Like the first thing that we understood was that it seemed like this problem happened to men more than women. It seemed like this problem happened to people who were who smoked a lot, right? We understood that early. It seemed like this problem happened more to people who were obese than people who weren't. It seemed like this problem happened to people who had blood pressure that was elevated versus not. Then we understood total cholesterol seemed to be a risk factor. Then we got more detailed and understood that low HDL was a risk factor and elevated LDL was a risk factor and on. And over the years, we've added more and more information to this big compendium of risk factors in an attempt to classify who a person is at risk and then act on that and try to reverse whatever factors are reversible. Some of them are and some of them aren't. Some of them are in our control. Some of them are outside of our control. Some of them a patient might be willing to address. Other ones they might not. But that's the whole idea, right? It's like to classify risk. And it turns out that like when you're doing that, these kind of like hard data points, like blood pressure, for example, or LDL cholesterol, they're like much easier to measure and they're much easier to act upon with pharmaceutical interventions, right? And so it's like, oh, your blood pressure is like 180 over 100. That's bad. We can give you any number of different pharmaceuticals and lower that number down. And then we can measure in a research context, you know, what effect that had on your coronary vascular risk in order, hopefully, to prevent death. That's really what this is all about. And I think that what happens in a case like your father's and in so cases of millions and millions of people across this country and the world is that we hyper-focus on those hard numbers like that and kind of lose or blur our focus on the overall risk factor package because there's many things that aren't so easily measurable that contribute to coronary vascular risk. Like I said, you know, genetics and dietary patterns and stuff. And so what I like to do when a patient comes in with elevated coronary vascular risk, maybe they have a family history or maybe they smoke cigarettes or smoked cigarettes for a long time or something, is try to do whatever we can do to optimize their risk factor profile, that whole package. And that may or may not include, you know, direct targeting on some of those specific parameters like blood pressure, LDL, HDL, ApoB lipoprotein A, you know, the list goes on and on. Anyway, that was a long way of describing a kind of a, I guess what I call a holistic or comprehensive approach to the prevention of heart disease.
This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive, and I am so excited to share that the award-winning brand now has the tastiest way to take your probiotic with gummies designed for the whole family, but still clinically proven effective. Wesley has been taking them for months now since they came out, and he is their biggest fan. That's a little bit of a pun there because of the immediate deep loading results. Just Thrive is the only product on the market with numerous peer-reviewed studies and clinical trials showing that their probiotic reduce leaky gut and inflammation. The formula is groundbreaking in its effectiveness, guaranteed to arrive 100% alive in your gut and has a thousand times better survivability than leading products. If you missed episode 54 with their founder, we talked more about this. I highly recommend that you go listen, especially if you want to nerd out on gut health. I, as a result of that, have recently integrated their Just Calm formula to my evening routine as well, and I am sleeping better than ever. I love that it's been clinically proven in multiple studies to help reduce perceived stress, balance cortisol, improve sleep quality, and even encourage focus and flow. And because I pair it with the probiotic, it works to improve the gut-brain connection. A healthy gut is crucial for immune and digestive health, but it's also one of the best ways to beat stress. So I take and recommend their probiotic all the time, and I also recommend it to my skincare clients who tell me how effective and helpful that it has been for them. And it's not a surprise because your gut health impacts literally everything, your well-being, your mood, your digestion. Plus, it's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. To try it, which I sincerely highly recommend. Like this is if I <laughs> if there's one supplement you're gonna take, a probiotic is so helpful and just thrives is the best I've ever taken. So to try it, get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code WholeView. That includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings at justthrivehealth.com slash discount slash wholeview with code wholeview. And just as kind of a bonus shout out here, the reason that I think it's especially helpful to take a probiotic supplement is because we no longer have exposure to the soil that has natural probiotic in it on our food the way that we would have when we were evolving. Now everything is so sanitary from the processes that bring our food to us, which is great in so many other ways, but it means that the beneficial bacteria that our food would have been carrying on it for us are no longer included in our food and regular routine. We're not out there gardening. It's not on our hands, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So taking a soil-based probiotic has a very different effect than taking one that you might casually find at a grocery store or that um, might be in a yogurt or something that you eat. All of those things could be great and contributing overall to positive improvement. But for me, it was a game changer to introduce Just Thrive. And so I definitely, I've seen it be the same thing for Wesley. I highly want to recommend it. If you have any sort of symptoms that you're frustrated by, um, give it a shot. Doesn't hurt. Someone wants to be on statins because as you say, the risk is high and that 
the risk without symptoms other than it being a really dramatic scare factor comes up for them. What would you recommend as supporting, for example, brain health or combating some of the effects and side effects of a step? Yeah, great. it's a great question. So they're commonly used drugs. They do have a place and there's a lot of research that supports their use when they're used appropriately. And so we mentioned already in our discussion about drug nutrient depletions, that probably the single most important thing is coenzyme Q10. And I would also say maybe even I said the single most important thing. I think the most important thing is doing what a person is willing and able to do to minimize their cardiovascular risk across all those patterns, right? Including their cholesterol, but not with this hyper or laser focus on just cholesterol, but improving their overall risk factor profile, stress management, sleep, you know, good nutritious food, healthy physical activity patterns, mindfulness, stress management, et cetera. And then hopefully, and I, like I said, when people are willing or able, right? So do what you can do, understanding the risks, educate oneself about those risks, and then act on them to the extent that you're able. And then you know, you need, if you need to bring in a statin or if that makes you feel more comfortable, there's a common use case for statins. It doesn't sound like your father's in this category, but a lot of people want to continue their fast food eating, you know, unhealthy food behaviors and just use a statin to offset the risk associated with that, right? It's like a get out of jail free card. Like, oh, I can still eat whatever I want. I just take this, my cholesterol's down. It turns out that like dietary, poor dietary patterns are still a risk factor, even if your cholesterol's down, right? So like, that's what I'm talking about, looking at the whole risk. It's like, even though you have a good cholesterol numbers on your lipid panel because you take Crestor or Lipitor or whatever, it's still not a good idea to eat like a whole bunch of donuts for breakfast, right? Like it still contributes to risk, even though it might not show that in your lipid panel. So anyway, I'm encouraging people to try to understand that whole risk factor package. And then if they wind up on a drug for whatever reason, I always suggest that they add CoQ10 to that regimen. That's the fundamental sort of drug nutrient support. Good to know. The other one that I want to dive a little bit into, and then we'll close out with a fun question, mm. which is selfish in nature. The other one that I hear often is about biotin and thyroid. So I myself have thyroid disease a lot. Listeners have autoimmune and often thyroid associated with that. And I love that you shared a video talking about biotin being something that people need to be aware of as affecting thyroid test results. I I wasn't necessarily aware of this. I manage mine with lifestyle. And so I'm not getting testing regularly to like be aware of that. But I was recommending for people who have hair loss, which people with thyroid disorders often experience hair loss. I had, I've had COVID so many times, but I had long COVID and kind of getting through that, I had a lot of shedding, a lot of shedding in my hair. Mm -hmm. And so I was using a topical biotin product, among other things, there's CBD and different kinds of things in the product that I was using. And so I was sharing on social about the positive results that I was having with this. And I got questions about the biotin affecting thyroid levels when it's used topically and not just as a supplement. And so I did some of my own research and I found that it can, in fact, cross the blood barrier, which is a good thing. That's 
why we're seeing results from products that have biotin in them topically because it's an internal and an external solution. But then if someone were getting thyroid testing done and they're using a topical product to solve one of the symptoms of that issue, it's kind of creating this catch-22. So one of the you know things that I found, and I'm curious if this is anything you've looked into, is that if you're taking a supplement of any kind with biotin, that whether it's ingested or topical, discontinuing that 48 to 72 hours before testing will allow positive, you know, normal test results of the thyroid because biotin is water soluble, it'll leave the system. Do you find that would be the case? Or do you think that the thyroid would still have lingering effects from that? Or have any thoughts <laughs> in general about yeah. like this topical, you know, because if people might not even be realizing that's something that's in their shampoo, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of people who are out there who are either inappropriately medicated, you know, maybe too much, maybe too little because of this problem, both oral and topical. I think oral biotin supplementation is more common. Topical is becoming increasingly common as we've learned that you can get some of it through the skin and into the bloodstream. And to be clear, it's really interesting, actually. The, the biotin in the bloodstream has very little to do, if anything, with thyroid function per se, right? It's not actually affecting the thyroid or the pituitary gland or the thyroid metabolism. What it's doing is affecting the test, right? So when you think about this, right, so you take blood out of someone's vein and put it in a machine. And these are some pretty fancy machines at those labs that are testing things like TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone or T3 or T4, there's a whole bunch of other tests that we do, you know, like things like cholesterol and sodium, and uh, there's a million laboratory tests you can get done. And those tests are really fancy, you know, that's like the work of laboratory chemists. And they, it's kind of amazing if you dive deep into that world to see the complexities that are involved in testing the level of thyroid stimulating hormone in somebody's blood, right? It's not an easy thing to do. And it turns out that the TSH test and several of the other thyroid tests depend on laboratory technology that involves biotin, right? It's part of the machinery of the test. They use biotin to bind something. I don't know the details of it, but it binds something and then they see if the color changes or this sort of stuff, right? And then it's used in the measuring process. And so if there's extra biotin loaded into the blood from supplementation, it basically interferes with the accuracy of the test. It's not interfe interfering with the thyroid gland. It's interfering with the testing. And that can cause the TSH to be high or the TSH to be low or the free T4 or total T3 levels to be altered. And that it interferes with medical decision-making, right? If your TSH is really high, the doctor's going to tell you you have hypothyroidism and you need medicine or you need to do something about this. You're, you know, and so... Yeah. So that's what's happening there. It's a really interesting phenomenon. And I'm certain, and the, the laboratory data suggests this is true, that there are lots and lots of people who are inappropriately medicated with thyroid hormone, either too high, too low, not enough, too much because of this problem. And so, yes, the advice, whether it's topical or oral supplementation of biotin is to discontinue the use completely. I give 72 hours before your blood is drawn. That will bring your biotin levels back down to normal and hope, you know, in, there still will be some biotin in the bloodstream, but that the laboratory technology is calibrated for that and that should give you accurate thyroid lab testing value. So stop your biotin topicals or oral supplements three days before you get your blood drawn.
it's thank you for that validation and the explanation, which is fascinating. I also just want to clarify for people, correct me if I'm wrong, but biotin would be found in B-complex supplements, in a lot of multivitamins, in potentially if someone's taking like a collagen supplement, you know, anything like that, it might be added to it. So definitely check the labels of the supplements that you're ingesting. And then any product that you're using that's marketed for like hair, skin, nails, it could potentially have biotin in it because it is a great vitamin. Yes, it's a vitamin. I was like, is it a mineral? <laughs> it's a vitamin for that health support. But the problem is if you're getting your thyroid tested, I could. Yep, absolutely. And it's it's it's, it's widely found in multis. And yes, you're right. Hair, skin, and nails formulas. I'd be shocked to find a hair, skin, and nails formula that didn't include yeah. biotin. And yeah, absolutely. Biotin's totally great stuff. It just interferes with thyroid lab tests. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's all. Yeah. Great. So people who have thyroid issues do not need to avoid it. You just need to be aware before you get your blood drawn. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay, great. So the last one that I have is totally selfish on my end because I grew up with my grandparents and my parents telling me constantly to not crack my knuckles because I was going to get arthritis. Can you have a video talking about that being a scare tactic and not being supported by science? And I just want you to share with the class because I was so relieved to hear you say it and wondering if you could shine more light on that. Yeah, totally. You know, it's totally a scare tactic. And we're cut from the same cloth again here. I'm a knuckle cracker myself. I'm proud <laughs> about it. You know, there's this funny thing. I'll talk about the knuckle cracking, I promise. But there's this other related thing that everybody's heard of too, another scare tactic thing that I learned about recently, which is don't swim after you eat. Have you ever heard that before? Right. Like it's a common uh, thing. Like, like parents every summer, every day. Yes. Yeah, totally. Right. Like don't swim after you eat. Like it's dangerous. Like the idea is that like maybe you could drown or something or like the blood's going to rush into your stomach and like then you wouldn't be able to swim as well or something. Right. So like total scare tactic. And the reason why people say not to swim after you eat is because the kids at the beach or at the pool, they eat fast. And then they want to go swimming and the parents still want to hang out and like eat the barbecue and like drink a beer or whatever. And they don't want to go watch the kids and lifeguard them because they're not done eating yet. So they told the kids, don't swim after you eat. It's dangerous. You have to wait at least a half an hour. There's no truth to that at all. It's complete... thought it was because they didn't want the kids throwing up in the pool. Right? Yeah, like, right. So that's another reason. Yeah. Totally. That's also true. Yes. That's not, it's actually not true. I don't think it really increases the risk, but that was the idea. Like you could throw up in the pool and then they'll have to close the pool. So yes, add that to the list of fake reasons why you're not supposed to swim after you eat. But the real reason is that the parents just didn't want to go watch the kids in the pool. They wanted to continue eating at a leisurely pace on a summer beach day rather than go watch the kids. So with that in mind, yeah, knuckle cracking. I'm not sure there was like some nefarious reason why people came up with this other than the fact that knuckle cracking annoys a lot of people. Like it makes it like, you know, ah, skews people out. They hate the sound. They don't want people to do it. But indeed, there is no evidence that knuckle cracking, even very frequent knuckle cracking, increases the risk of arthritis. It might increase the, the length of ligaments across the involved joints, maybe loosening them a little bit, but it's just not a risky thing to do. There's no evidence that it increases the risk of joint disease of any sort. And there's been a number of interesting studies about this, the most interesting of which was a doctor himself who was told this, this is many years ago, who decided gosh, what a, what a scientist this guy was, um, to just crack the knuckles on one of his hands for his entire life. Like he did this for like 50 years. And then uh, at the end of those 50 years, you know, did x-rays of the left hand, which was cracked like three times a day. 
religiously and the right hand which was never cracked and they were basically identical i uh, don't know how he could have physically done that like that i know way. because you relieve for me it relieves tension right and so yeah. like to be able to like relieve tension on one side but not the other but yeah kudos to that scientist for yeah yeah i thought the same thing i'm like gosh that would drive me kind of nuts like i would, I need to like equalize it you know i'm gonna crack this thumb i gotta crack that thumb I'm just kind of feel balanced you know there must be something going around tiktok because my 13 year old brought it up to me like sometimes we're sitting and snuggling it's like a sign of affection that we'll crack each other's toes right like, and mm. so he went to go crack my toes and they didn't crack and he's like mom you have a vascular issue. There should always be air between your bones. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so he's like, I saw it on TikTok. I'm like, okay. I don't wow, know yeah. I yeah. love that sign of affection too. I'm a big, like I say, a big knuckle cracker. And I've done a lot of physical medicine in my professional work too. So I, I'm, I, I'll go around and like pull on my kids' toes. Sometimes yeah. you get the click. Sometimes you don't. If you yeah. don't get the click, you don't need to worry about that. Yeah, it's like I told him, I was like, I don't know where you're getting your information. But that's I might have to weigh in on this. I may have to weigh in on this one on TikTok soon. Yeah, there you go. Find the source video. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for helping bust all of these myths and diving deep into this. Really appreciate your time and willingness to go there. One of the things that I always try to leave listeners with is this actionable step that they can take to improve their life. So I know I've talked a lot about different kinds of supplementation and things to be aware of as it relates to inclusivity and access is there something that you can think of top of mind that would be like the number you know one two or three things that people can after they've listened to this podcast not feel overwhelmed like oh i need to do all the things i need to take all the supplements but just like do this thing and you will you know feel better or it will help you in some way a hundred percent it's a great question because so many of those hot tips are like, you know, take this supplement or buy this expensive thing or even eat organic food or something, which is not accessible to everybody, who, especially those who live in food deserts who don't have the money to afford such things. And I would like to say it here first that natural medicine doesn't need to be expensive and it really ought to be medicine for all people in a very down to earth way. So w- with that in mind, that inclusivity and access in mind, yeah, there, there's a few things I can think of. I'll give you three. The first one is like, I'm going to use a Latin word and the word is docere and docere is a a naturopathic principle and it's the Latin word for doctor and it means teacher. And so I think that we can all be our own doctors by educating ourselves and teaching, I think is one of the foundational things, learning about ourselves, about the world that we live in, about the sorts of things that we're talking about now. And there's so much empowerment that can come from education. And I think, yes, there are issues in our education system around inclusivity and access, that's to be sure. But I do think that there's opportunity for everyone to learn more about how their body works, learn more about how food and nutrition, et cetera, impacts their bodies, things like exposures and whatnot. So I think being your own docere, being your own doctor as teacher is a really important tool in in the road to better health for, that's accessible to everybody. Can so that would be- an asterisk there and say, make sure that your teacher is an actual teacher and not, you know, an Instagram influencer. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, I just- like 100% agree with you. And at the same time, I was thinking back to our earlier conversation about 
people claiming that you need to do all these other things, right? Instead of just the basics of yeah. learning about ourselves. Yeah. Yes, you're 100% right about that. And I was referring to that, a person being w- oneself, being one's own teacher. And certainly there are accessible teachers out there. I did not want to plug anything, but like, hey, we're talking about it. Follow me on Instagram. You know, like, why not? Right. Perfect opportunity. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the real deal right there. And so, uh, yeah. So, yes, trustworthy teachers in the medical professional world. And it's true that credentials don't always equal credibility. And I think the internet has broken down a lot of those kinds of barriers. But yes, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. You got to be careful who you trust out there. So, that was number one, education. And number two, in a very different way, is boundaries. And I think that like there's this adage that you've heard before that like good fences make good neighbors, you know, good training is helpful for animals. I know you're an animal owner and lover, and so am I. And boundaries around one's life. And this applies in so many different ways. It applies to people. It applies to toxins that we expose to, including toxic people. It applies to food and nutrition, what we don't do in terms of what we consume. It applies to physical activity and fitness. Like establishing boundaries is something that doesn't cost any money. It's something that anybody can do. And putting good boundaries around your diet, your lifestyle, the people, the toxins, the exposures, and is really good practice. And I think foundational natural medicine stuff that's available to anybody and doesn't cost a thing. So that would be number two is, is setting up boundaries. And those are good boundaries and you know boundaries around things that you do and boundaries around things that you don't do. So that'd be my number two. And then number three, num- number three, this is just an awesome one in the true sense of the word. So there was some research about inflammation. So we've known for a long time that like positive emotions are correlated with positive health and negative emotions are correlated with negative health. Like negative emotions like anger, and frustration, jealousy, these kinds of things are associated, correlated with negative health outcomes and positive emotions, joy, love, contentment, et cetera, are associated with good or better health outcomes. So the question, this was at Berkeley several years ago, was which positive emotions or which positive emotion is the most strongly correlated with lower levels of inflammation or inflammatory markers in the blood? In this case, they were looking at interleukin-6, an inflammatory marker in the bloodstream. And so they did a study and the study concluded that the emotion, positive emotion that was most strongly correlated with low IL-6 levels, lower levels of inflammation was awe. A-W-E. And so I love that because first of all, I'm an old surfer and I like to say awesome all the time, like in the kind of surfy kind of way, but also awe is one of those things that is accessible to all of us as well, right? Whether it's awe in your own body, in your family, in your home, in nature, in your animals, in technology, there's opportunities to appreciate awe everywhere. And if you just take a brief moment to think like how amazing it is that you and I can talk at a great distance over this technology platform in this way, or whatever the case may be, the beautiful mountain that you might see, or the how your dog is amazing, or your cat, or your child, or the food, or how beautiful that orange is when you slice it open and look at the inside of it. Those are all opportunities to appreciate and experience awe. And if you do that regularly and make that a practice, it's the research shows that will correlate with lower levels of inflammation. So yeah, find awesomeness every day, a few times a day is my number three. I love that. And I love an excuse to like watch the sunset or go check out the stars. Those are things that give me off. I'm just, just think about like in the scheme of the universe, we're not even a grain of sand on the beach. And like, 
beyond what is around us and you know all of those things so that resonates with me. I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. I am going to look into that study because I I totally geeked out on the happiness study that was done. I had podcast with Kathy Heller and she introduced me to that one that was done by, I think it was through Harvard. And so now I'm like, oh, I'm going to go check out this emotional study. I love the intersection of like mental wellness with physical wellness and I hope that someday we will stop talking about them as two different things. Yeah, absolutely. That that is, a, so... that, you know, in, in your world about spectrums, right? Like, you know, I, I love this line one time, one autism researcher said like that the autism spectrum is long and deep and we're all on it somewhere, right? Like it's kind of a beautiful thing. And I think, so, yeah, so, so, so similarly, right? The mind and the body, like I, I remember in school, I took a class and it was called psycho neuroimmunology psycho for psychology, neuro for neurology, and then immune for immunology. And then like, I think a couple years later, it was called like psycho neuro immunoendocrinology, adding in that like hormonal, you know, function and endocrinology is part of that. And it's sort of like ridiculous. Like this could just become like the longest course title ever because duh, it's all connected. (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to change the best. Everything's connected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Listeners, I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to keep in touch, we have a link in the show notes that you can find Dr. Josh Levitt on Instagram and the same handle on TikTok. I don't know who's on TikTok. It's not me. It's definitely my kids, but it sounds like you can definitely find Dr. Josh there. Maybe he'll tackle vascular issues with knuckle cracking in the future, <laughs> but there's lots of information there. I just pulled a few of your videos, but there's tons and tons there for people to find more information and myths that you're busting. And you can also find everything that you might want to find at upwellness.com. I'm sure links to your socials and all the other things that you do and projects that you know, your, you and your business and all of those things are at upwellness.com. And we also will put a list of resources into the show notes for you. So I pulled the JAMA study that you talked about earlier, and I'm going to go research this study as well. And I'll put those links in the show notes for you listeners. And remember that you can head to patreon.com slash the whole view to get all of our shows delivered to your inbox ad free which is a really great way to support the show that we create and produce ourselves. And I am sincerely asking that if you enjoyed the show, can you leave a review saying so? It costs you nothing except about 30 seconds of your time, but will make a huge difference in my being able to continue to do this work and reaching people who need to or would want to find more information about the topics that we cover here. So Don't forget to follow or subscribe in the podcast app that you're using as well. And as always, I appreciate your willingness to be open to grow through your own personal change. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. Thank you, Dr. Josh, for being here with us. Any final words? Thank you so much. And thanks to your listeners. I hope this was an inspiring and motivating conversation for all of you. Thank you again. Absolutely.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.